Today on the Matt Walsh Show, Republican Glenn Youngkin pulled out a stunning victory last night. We'll talk about the lessons that can be learned from it, and we'll revel in the hilarious media meltdown that happened today as well. Also, the mother of the boy who raped a girl in Loudoun County has finally spoken out. Her comments are revealing, but perhaps not in the way she intends. Plus, the Kyle Rittenhouse trial kicks off. We'll discuss that. And finally, is it cruel and callous for parents to kick their adult children out of their homes and force them to live on their own? That's what many people seem to think, and we'll talk about that today and so much more on the Matt Walsh Show. Truly, in all of my many long hours as a Virginia resident, I've never been so proud. Ever since I first came out as a trans Virginian, I have dreamed of a day like this. My greatest hope now is that others will be inspired to live their own truth loudly and boldly. And the truth in Virginia last night, as you've heard by now, is that Republican Glenn Youngkin did pull out the upset victory over Terry McAuliffe. It wasn't even all that close in the end, with Youngkin winning by three or four points, which may as well be a landslide, considering that Biden Biden won the state by 10 points a year ago. So this was a massive swing, a tectonic shift, an earthquake, and especially cataclysmic for Democrats when you consider that the swing didn't even happen over the course of an entire year or half a year. Only a couple of months ago, Youngkin was down significantly in the polls and running a standard default GOP beltway type campaign. Then things changed, and we'll talk about those changes and what they mean. But before we do that, before we discuss the reality on the ground, let's check in with uh, McAuliffe's PR team in the corporate media, who are all, as expected, not taking this very well. The good news for Republicans is that the Democrats are steadfastly determined to learn all of the wrong lessons and to stick to their original assumptions and preconceived notions and strategies, no matter the results. And to that end, tearful cable news personalities, mascara running down their faces, men and women, filling our leftist tears tumblers to overflowing, tried desperately to comfort themselves by playing the greatest hits. Two hits specifically. And the first is that somehow, you know, this is still all about Trump. Here's uh, Nicole Wallace about that on MSNBC. I think we know the answer to some of this. I watched Glenn Youngkin's interviews on Fox News, and he did nothing that clears. He did not. I mean, he worshipped at the altar of Donald Trump on Fox News. He flew an insurrection flag at his rallies. He simply didn't. He played dumb about a, 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 a Zoom rally. He did not really put much distance between himself and Donald Trump on the big lie or the deadly insurrection in which police officers were maimed by flagpoles. So I think that the, the real ominous thing is that critical race theory, which isn't real, turned the suburbs 15 points to the Trump insurrection-endorsed Republican. What do Democrats do about that? Worship at the altar of Donald Trump. He did that apparently by mentioning Trump's name like twice in a year. He didn't campaign with Trump. He didn't talk about Trump. Youngkin treated Trump as mostly irrelevant to the concerns of Virginia voters because he is. He's the former president of the United States. Parents in Virginia, voters in Virginia are not going about their days thinking constantly about the former president, worried about him, longing for him. They're thinking about their own families, their kids, their communities, their country. The people who think about Trump the most are leftists in politics and media. Trump is the star in their solar system. They orbit around him. They don't know how to talk about anything but him. They certainly don't know how to campaign against anything but him. That's all McAuliffe could manage. Youngkin mentioned Trump like twice in a year 
McAuliffe mentioned him twice per sentence. And we see how that strategy worked out. But we'll get back to that in a minute. Uh, I'm not done reveling in the pain of my enemies yet. The, the other major theme from the media is that Virginia voters are all racist for voting against McAuliffe, who is white, by the way. I mean, truly, why else would a person vote against Terry McAuliffe other than anti-black racism? Here's Kirsten Powers on CNN. There was all of this, you know, talking about critical race theory and and representing it as if it was happening in elementary school, which, of course, is not even being taught there. But it's there were a lot of these hot button cultural issues, I think, that um, that 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 Youngkin was really able to use to his advantage. Um, I don't think that that's right because I think it was misrepresented. But this this is now, I think, also the Republican playbook is is to use these issues to scare people, basically, um, a, a feeling out of control, you know, that, that everything's out of control with their children and they need to be protected from these people with this, uh, demagogues and this agenda, right? Yeah, sure. I, let's be clear. Some of it was dog whistle. Yeah. Right? Some of it was... Uh, ra- dog whistle racism, thousand percent. That's their favorite term is dog whistle. If if you if you're even using the phrase dog whistle at this point, that's a dog whistle that you're a moron. Um, because it, I, dog whistle doesn't mean what they what they think it means. Uh, and and for them, you know, this is dog whistle racism, and uh, because it's the Republicans who are obsessed with race, they claim. Joy Reid on MSNBC, she uh, expectedly. Agrees that the coronavirus or that the virus it was a very has low not importance to many yes. of the voters. Which there. Was it was education, right. which is code for white parents don't like the idea of teaching right. about race. And I mean, unfortunately, race is just the most palpable tool in the toolkit. It used to be of the Democratic Party back right. in the day when they were Dixiecrats, and now of the Republican Party. It just is powerful. Race is a palpable tool. That's true. I mean, nobody knows that better than Joy Reid. Without the tool of race, she'd be working as a cashier at Bath & Body Works. The only reason she's famous and earning a hefty paycheck with a major media company is that she's a black woman who plays the race card. That's the only reason. That's, that's why they have her on the payroll. She has no other insight to offer. Nothing else to bring to the table. Have you ever heard Joy Reid say anything interesting? Have you ever heard her make a point that was not about race where you went, well, that's an interesting point. I mean, that's all these people that you see, they, 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 they're on camera. They get paid millions of dollars to be on camera every single day talking, and they never say anything that's even remotely interesting. So she's got nothing else to bring to the table. Race is a palpable tool. All right. And again, no one knows that better than her. Nia Malika Henderson on CNN. She knows, uh, too, from experience that race is a palpable tool. Here's her take on the situation. I think we also see the enduring power of the culture wars and the Republicans are better at playing this game because it's essentially white identity politics that works for Republicans. We saw it in 2016 uh, and we're seeing it in some of these races now, particularly uh, in the McAuliffe race with the CRT issue uh, in education. Republicans are playing identity politics, she says. Democrats and the media set half the cities in the country on fire for six months by convincing people that police officers officers were out hunting and killing black men, and yet Republicans are the ones cynically exploiting racial tensions and anxieties? Sure thing. And yet all of this crying and panicking still was not as embarrassing as the reaction from McCulloch himself, who took to the stage late in the night for a concession speech, which was noticeably lacking in any kind of actual concession. He has since, since conceded. This morning he sent out a statement conceding. 
Um, but when he gave his speech, he refused to do that. And then while leaving the stage, uh, we could play this. He, he, as you can see, he, he began dancing. Uh, and that's what he's, that's what he is doing. And he also appears to be wearing lipstick. I don't know. Is it possible to zoom in? We probably can't, but it, isn't he? He's wearing lipstick. Am I, are my, I, I know that I'm colorblind. Do my eyes deceive me? Or is this man not wearing lipstick? He put on lipstick and he went out and danced on stage. I mean, Youngkin broke this guy. Either that, he was maybe he was eating a great popsicle before giving a speech. Maybe he was drowning his sorrows with boxed wine. Maybe he was doing all of those things together. Having the popsicle, drinking wine, putting on lipstick, crying. We all have our coping mechanisms, I suppose. But all that aside, extracting ourselves from the realm of delusion, re-entering realityville, what are the actual takeaways from last night? I think there are many, but um, let's talk about two. One, I'm not one to gloat, but we, uh, we move the needle here at the Daily Wire. I think our rally in Loudoun County helped to bring a national spotlight to the education issue in Virginia, immobilized people, then our investigative reporting, which uh, blew the lid off of the sexual abuse cover-up in Loudoun County schools. So we're, we're, we're making a difference here. And when I say we, I don't just mean people employed by the Daily Wire. None of what we're doing would make a difference if we were just talking to ourselves. Uh, this was a, a team effort between us and you and the audience with a big and unintentional assist from the Loudoun County School Board. We got to thank them also. None of this would have happened without their indispensable contributions. So I guess I lied on second thought. Uh, I, I am one to gloat. As conservatives, we've had plenty of losses to sulk over. So you have to celebrate the wins too. And this was a major win. And it wouldn't have happened without us. If you're a Daily Wire fan, even better, a member, you're truly a part of, of something special. You're part of a mission. And, and we're getting results. These are results. Two, as I've been preaching all month and for years before that, um, the culture war matters. The culture war is the war. Pal- politics is but one battlefield, one engagement within that broader struggle. struggle. Political victories and political defeats They happen within the context of culture. And despite what you just heard from that cable news talking head about Republicans being good at fighting culture wars, for a very long time, the opposite has been the case. I hope that is true now and will be even more true in the future. But historically, that has not been true. Republicans retreated from the culture war and the culture itself, surrendering it piece by piece to the left giving up on the war, but hoping to squeak out a few victories now and again on the political battlefield. The problem with that strategy is that even if you achieve those victories, which you will inevitably, as the political pendulum tends to swing one way and then another, so no matter what's happening with the culture, Republicans are going to win some, Democrats are going to win some. But even when it swings your way, the supposedly conservative political leaders are leading within the context of a culture owned by the left. This means that any imprint left by a Republican president or governor, will be like a footprint in the sand during low tide. It's only going to get washed away. And soon it will be as though nobody had walked there at all. You you won't be able to tell the difference. I mean, look at Donald Trump. Nearly everything that, that, uh, that he accomplished through four years was erased in like an hour of the Biden administration. Okay, Joe Biden was able to erase all of that by snapping his fingers. And by his second day in office, Trump, it was as if Trump never existed. Now, he still exists because they talk about him all the time. But in terms of policies, of, of um, you know, actual, tangible things, achievements, all of that wiped away. 
That's because you can't stop the tide of culture. The only hope is to win the culture. We're still very far from achieving that goal, but that is the goal. It has to be. Or else we might as well give up now. I mean, if that's not the goal, if the goal is not to win the culture, then what's the point? Give up. Every man for yourself. Go flee into the mountains, flee into the forests. Board the first uh, Elon Musk rocket ship to Mars. I mean, if, if we're giving up on the culture. So it never made any sense when you heard these conservatives say, oh, let's not worry about the culture war. So you're saying, let's not worry about anything then. Why are you, what, what are we talking about then? What do you think you're fighting for if you're not fighting for the culture? But if you are fighting the real fight, the fight for culture, it has to start with education. And education was, of course, the issue in Virginia. It didn't start out that way, but that's what it became. Why is education the first thing you got to talk about when we're talking about culture? Because you can have, again, all of the Republican elected leaders you want. If 50 million children are still going to left-wing indoctrination camps every day where they're subjected to relentless social conditioning and left-wing religious proselytization, it's not going to matter much in the end. So the fight for culture, which again is the fight, has to begin in the education system. And this was... Hopefully, what we're looking at is the beginning of something. Not, not, uh, this is, this is, as much as we can gloat in our victories and it's fun to do, we'd make a big mistake if we said, well, there we go. We won that one. Let's move on to the next battle. I mean, if the ultimate goal in terms of education is to retake the education system and to fundamentally transform it into something where it is no longer a left wing indoctrination camp, then there's a lot of work still to be done. I mean, essentially what we're talking about, it, this, is, this is not about, re, well, we reform the system. This would have to be a total dismantling of the system. And then rebuilding it into something entirely different. Those are the ultimate goals. So there's still a lot of work yet to be done. But this is a big victory, and we can enjoy that, at least for a day. Now let's get to our five headlines. Well, I want to tell you quickly about one of my favorite products. You hear about me, you hear me talking about it all the time, Relief Band. Relief Band is the number one FDA-cleared anti-nausea wristband that has been clinically proven to quickly relieve and effectively prevent nausea and vomiting associated with motion sickness, anxiety, migraines, hangovers, morning sickness, chemotherapy, and so much more. I don't go anywhere without my Relief Band. If I get into a car, an Uber, and I forgot it, I always say, hang on, got to grab my Relief Band. I run back inside. I put it on. I'm very proud about it. I tell everybody about my Relief Band. And uh, the product is a 100% drug-free, non-drowsy solution, and it provides all-natural, long-lasting relief with zero side effects for as long as needed. The technology was originally developed over 20 years ago in hospitals to relieve nausea from patients. But now, through Relief Band, it's available to the masses. How it works is Relief Band stimulates a nerve in the wrist that travels to the part of your brain that controls nausea. It feels like magic, but it's not. This is pure science, and it works. I can tell you that from extensive experience. Relief Band just released its newest model, Relief Band Sport. The Sport is waterproof, features interchangeable bands, and has extended battery life, so you can wear this even while you're playing sports. If you have a bout of nausea, 
on the basketball court, um, then you have that relief band on, and that's going to take care of that problem. Instead of puking all over the basketball court, as I have done countless times, that's why nobody ever wants to play with me anymore. As the holiday season quickly approaches, there's never been a better time to give the, gr- the gift of relief and make sure your loved ones are nausea-free. Right now, Relief Band has an exclusive offer just for Matt Walsh listeners. If you go to Relief Band and use promo code Walsh, you'll receive 20% off, plus free shipping, and no questions asked, 30-day money-back guarantee. So head to R-E-L-I-E-F-B-A-N-D.com. Use our promo code Walsh for 20% off, plus free shipping. So the other, uh, the other thing I want to mention as well, um, and this, this hasn't really made it, made it into the analysis um, for most of the pundits, both on, on the left and right, but I thought that there was uh, very interesting polling data, looking at the exit polls, and what is it that motivated uh, voters. And uh, we know that, I mean, I was looking at a chart in the New York Times that uh, shows that every single, showing which, which counties were more Republican than they were um, during the presidential election or more Democrat. And every single one, it's a, it's, a, it's a red arrow to the right. I mean, every single county, every single county in Virginia, more Republican than it was in 2020. And so you had a lot of swing voters and even some Democrats who decided not to vote for the, um, for the Democrat this time around. You look at the exit poll, I saw one interesting data point. 43% said they didn't want to vote for the Democrat because they were grossed out that Joe Biden shit his pants. Um, and I thought that was a really fascinating tidbit. And I know I said that we shouldn't be talking about this anymore. And I, I still feel that way. But at the same time, you know, is it a, is it a, here's all I'm asking. It's just a question. Is it a coincidence that Joe Biden his pants in front of the Pope and then only a few days later, Democrats lose big in a major election. Are we really going to say that's totally coincidental? Now, I think education, I think all these things are important. But he did poop his pants, allegedly. It's not funny. Uh, but I'm, I'm just throwing it out there. It's just a question. I'm asking it, and then we'll move on. Uh, one other thing here as we, as we move on to the headlines. You know, we're told that uh, Glenn Young can win one because of racism. And there are a lot of... Uh, White supremacy, all these, all these parents, bunch of white supremacists, and that's why they voted for Glenn Youngkin. Because th- this, this is a, this is a strategy that's really going to work going into 2022, the midterms going, and then going into 2024. I mean, the Democrats they tried calling parents domestic terrorists. Terry McAuliffe came out and said, ah, "Parents, it's none of your business. What happens in the schools? Let, let, let the teachers decide." Major backlash against that. And uh, now they're simply going to double down on it and say, yeah, you're a bunch of racist white supremacists. But that's interesting because the lieutenant governor um, is a woman by the name of Winsome Sears. And she's a black woman. She's the first black lieutenant governor in Virginia. And this is the woman that a bunch of white supremacist racists voted for. Now, she got up last night to speak, and um, all those racists in the audience, they were, you know, oddly enough, I don't know if they all had their eyes closed or, or what. It was kind of dark. Or, you know, I, I, I don't know what it is. They, they didn't notice that she was a black woman because they were all cheering for her, even though they're a bunch of racists. But um, let's listen to a little bit of uh, Winsome Sears last night. We're going to have safer neighborhoods, safer communities. And our children are going to get a good education. Be 
because education lifted my father out of poverty, education lifted me out of poverty, education will lift us all out of poverty because we, we must have marketable skills so that our children can not just survive, but they will thrive and they will create generational wealth. That's what this is about. I'm going to finish up. We love you too. It's a historic night. Yes, it is, but I didn't run to make history. I just wanted to leave it better than I found it. You know, she is actually a uh, talented and charismatic speaker, and there aren't very many of those in the Republican Party. Um, there aren't many, very many of those in politics in general or in life. It's a, that's a, it's a rare, it's a rare talent, but the Republican party has been, has been really hurting for those, for those types of, um, politicians who can get up there and just kind of speak and sound natural, not sound scripted and have a, have a, have a natural kind of charisma to them. She really has that. So I think uh, there's a star in the making here. We're going to be seeing a lot more from Winsome Sears, uh, who again is, beloved by the white supremacists in the audience, cheering, shouting they love her. How could that be? Well, you know, here's how it really happens. It's because uh, the media, when when the media gets around to acknowledging the existence of Winsome Sears, which they haven't done, they, they, they right now, the strategy is we're not going to talk about this woman at all. Um, but eventually, especially if she gets more and more high profile, um, they're, they're going to have to acknowledge her. And when they do, they're going to say, well, she is, uh, she's technically black, but really she's a part of the, she, she's a part of the structures of whiteness or whatever nonsense. So she's, she's white in spirit, if not in terms of skin pigment. That's what they'll say. Now, all that said, of course, making this a racial thing is absurd. And it would be absurd no matter what, but especially absurd when the guy who lost is white um, as well. But making this a racial thing is absurd. Saying that it's, uh, you know, tying this to racism is, of course, completely ridiculous. This is part of the Democrat Tourette syndrome. They, they don't, it's, it, this just, it's instinctive. Everything, anytime something doesn't go the way they like, it's racism, racism. Um, they can't, you know, they're stuck in traffic and they're in their cars shouting, racism, racism did this. That's all ridiculous. However, the claim that part of the story here is, quote-unquote, white backlash, um, that's not entirely false. There there is an element of so-called white backlash. In that, it turns out white parents aren't really crazy about sending their kids to school so that they can learn that um, they are evil, that they're inherently bigoted, that they are the inheritors of generational guilt for things that they didn't do. Okay, so yeah, it turns out white people aren't, a lot of white people aren't, aren't crazy about that. It turns out that a lot of white people don't like being cast as the villains, don't like being degraded and insulted. So is that part of the story? Sure, that's part of it. And, and there's there's nothing strange about that. There's nothing outrageous about it. There's certainly nothing racist about it. But from the left's perspective, you know, they think 
They should be able to shout at white people, say you're all a bunch of scumbags and villains. And say, you know, send your kids to us and we're going to tell them the same thing. Send your send your 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 scummy demon offsprings to us so that we can tell them all about how they're inherently racist and that nobody can be racist against them. Um, and that's somehow they have to apologize simply for existing. All of their, you know, th- their ancestors were, were all scumbags as well or worse. So the left thinks they should tell that. They should say that to us, and our response should be, okay, yes, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am, however you identify. And we bow our heads in shame and go along. And if, and if we dare say, you know what, I'm not, no, I'm not crazy about that. I don't agree. Then they start shouting, white backlash, the white people are upset. Well, yeah. Yes, you're correct about that part of it. All right, next, the Daily Mail has an exclusive interview with the uh, mother of the teen boy in Loudoun County who uh, raped the girl in the bathroom. Obviously, a story that was uh, pivotal, I think, in this election and in the overall movement to reclaim our education system. But we haven't heard from anyone in this boy's family until now. The Daily Mail tracked this this, uh, woman down. And let me read a little bit about what she had to say. And she's, she's defending her, her son and claiming that this has all been twisted and blown out of proportion and everything. But here's, here's some of what she says. It says, The mother of the 15-year-old boy who dressed in a skirt and raped a female classmate in the girl's bathroom and was then charged with sexually assaulting another girl months later says her son doesn't identify as a female and it wasn't just some disguise to slip into the girl's bathroom. Speaking exclusively of the Daily Mail, the mother who asked not to be identified for the sake of her underage son defended his actions as that of a heterosexual hormonal teen who, in the case of the rape, had consensual sex with the girl twice before. Totally irrelevant to the question of whether or not this was rape, which which he has been found guilty of, by the way. She declared, quote, he's a 15-year-old boy that wanted to have sex in the bathroom with somebody that was willing. And they're just twisting this just enough to make it a political hot-button issue. What a lovely woman this mother is. Well, he... He wanted to have sex with someone who was willing, but she wasn't willing, it turned out, and so he did it anyway. Can you blame the poor boy? That's what we're getting from the mother. The story exploded when Scott Smith, the father of the rape victim, was dragged out of a school board meeting with a bloodied mouth on June 22nd. So we know about that background. Um, Getting a little bit more from the mother. says, despite his androgynous style and declaration that he's pansexual, The boy's mother insisted he isn't the gender-fluid boogeyman in a culture war about transgender policies. She explained he would wear a skirt one day and then the next day. He would wear jeans and a t-shirt, a polo or hoodie. He was trying to find himself, and that involved all kinds of styles. I believe he was doing it because it gave him attention that he desperately needed and sought. At the same time, she concedes her son is deeply troubled, acknowledging his extensive history of misbehavior that included sending nude photos of himself to a girl in fifth grade. She uh, doesn't clarify if this is something he did in fifth grade or he sent... I assume from from what she's saying that in fifth grade he did this. I'm not sure. Um, She reached her own breaking point with him in early October when he phoned her from the juvenile detention center following his second arrest. The mom says, he asked me how I was doing, and I said, I'm broken, I'm shattered, you shattered me. Do you have any idea what you've done to me, what you've done to your family? And his response was, no, what did I do? She said that uh, she had been his primary point of contact with his dad living in New Jersey. 
At that point, I was like, you know what? I love you. I always will. I'll do everything I can to always be there for you in any capacity possible. But I told him, you need to call your father from now on. Do not call me. I need to heal. And I need you to figure this out for yourself. And she goes on to talk about how the father uh, showed up to the juvenile court appearance. Um, and, uh, and she was upset about that. And she gets more into the family drama. And a lot of details that we don't, we don't really need isn't, isn't relevant. Um, I think there are, there are a few things here to, to point out. The first is that nobody ever claimed, certainly the Daily Wire in our investigative reporting, we never claimed that the boy was transgender. Uh, we said he was wearing a skirt on the day of the assault, which is true. And uh, in terms of how he identifies, we never said anything about that. It doesn't, doesn't matter. It doesn't make a, doesn't make a difference. So he identifies as pansexual right? or gender fluid or whatever, according to her. Changes by the day. He's trying to find himself, uh, she says. And apparently raping a girl in the bathroom was part of his uh, journey of self-discovery from the way that she's putting it. But that's, that's not relevant at all. That's not the point. You know, how does this tie into the, uh, to the bathroom policies, the transgender bathroom policies? How do we make this connection? Well, we didn't make that connection. I didn't. The Daily Wire didn't. That wasn't in in, uh, the the investigative reporting on this. You know who made the connection? The Loudoun County School Board. They're the ones who did it. Because they lied about this and tried to cover it up. And they did that because at the same time, when this was all happening, they were trying to push through uh, the transgender bathroom policies to allow boys into the girls' room. So they are the ones who said, well, gee, uh, we really want to pass this transgender p- policy. And the fact that a girl was just brutally raped inside of one of our bathrooms is pretty inconvenient to that, even if the boy didn't identify as transgender. So we're going to pretend it never happened. And we're going to lie right to the face of the father of the victim. And then when he gets arrested for reacting in an angry way like any father would, we're going to paint them as a domestic terrorist. So they're the ones who drew this connection. Is, does, is, is this assault related to the bathroom policies? Yes, because the Loudoun County School Board made it that way. Because a big part of the scandal here, you know, a terrible thing happening at a school, you know, someone falling victim to a terrible violent crime. That is a terrible crime. It's not, it does, it's not immediately an, an institutional scandal. The institutional scandal happens with the cover-up. And they did the cover-up because of the bathroom policies. That's how it all ties together. And also it's related in another way. That you know, even if the bathroom policies were not the reason why that boy was in the bathroom, this event in the bathroom only illustrates, for those who need it illustrated, why it's a really bad idea to combine boys and girls in bathrooms, no matter how they identify doesn't make a difference. Because no matter how a boy identifies, he's still a boy. Biologically. And he doesn't belong in a bathroom with, with girls. Nothing good can come of it. This is a, what, what we saw in Lowndes County is, is like the worst case scenario that can come from it. And it will happen more. It's just a matter of statistics. This, this, this is mathematics here. 
The more you combine boys and girls in high schools and bathrooms, the more likely, the more opportunities there are for uh, sexual assaults. So this is, this is an example as to why uh, it's a bad idea to combine them in that way. And there's something else, too. You know, the, the other thing we take from this is that this boy, um, by the mother's admission, came from a chaotic home life. Father not in the home. I could have told you that. You know, I mean, I, that, that's, that's something, not knowing anything about this boy at all, only knowing what he did, only knowing that he's wearing a skirt and that he raped a girl. I could have told you right then and there he doesn't have a father in the house. In fact, I could have told you that without, without even the rape, the boy wearing the skirt, pretty good indication there's no father in the home. And even if he's in the home, he's not present. He's not a real influence in the home. Combine those two things together and, yeah, it's almost certain the father's not there and he's not. So he comes from a chaotic uh, home, home life with, with no guidance. I mean, the mother's talking about, yeah, he's trying to find himself. He's gender fluid one day. He's pansexual the next. He's wearing a skirt. He's wearing jeans. He's wearing a hoodie, whatever. He, he's, he's begging for attention, trying to find himself. Yeah, well, that's where, that's where you need a parent, especially a father, if this is a boy we're talking about. You need a father there to say, son, this isn't what boys do. Okay? You're a boy. Here's how boys are supposed to act. Boys don't wear skirts. Okay? This is not what boys do. Boys don't, this isn't how boys dress. That's not how boys behave. You need a father there to impart those kinds of lessons. And if he's not there, or even if he is there, but he refuses to impart those lessons, then it's not going to head anywhere good. And that's that's what we saw here. All right, uh, next, the Kyle Rittenhouse trial has started. The uh, prosecution made its opening statement, which is that, you know, the, the, the prosecution, their, their opening argument, their, their, their point here is that Kyle Rittenhouse was there and that he killed some guys. And nobody disputes that. But that's basically their whole case. He was there and he killed people. Uh, right. No one denies that. The question is, why did he kill those people? Um, was it self-defense or not? And that's, and that's the defense's argument as presented in their, in their opening arguments and as they'll uh, lay out, you know, as the case uh, proceeds. Their argument is that there's video and uh, you can watch the video. And so we know exactly what happened. And the video conclusively proves that Kyle Rittenhouse was defending himself. He was being uh, attacked by violent, murderous, crazed mobs of people and uh, he had no choice but to def- defend himself. And on that end, human events obtained never-before-seen footage. Um, somehow, we have never seen this footage before. This is apparently from, I guess, an FBI surveillance drone, which was there on that night. And the FBI has had this footage, and we have not seen it until now. But let's uh, let's play this this footage here. So, well, actually, before we play it, so this is there were there were two incidents, two shootings. Um. This is the first one where Rosenbaum was was shot, and so it's a little bit hard to see what's going on here. But you see, if you if you're watching this this video, you can see on the top left corner, um, Rosenbaum is pursuing Kyle Rittenhouse. And let's play the video now. So the top left corner, you see Rosenbaum and and uh, Rittenhouse. 
Greenhouse is running away. Rosenbaum's pursuing him. At the very last minute, you can see Kyle Rittenhouse is forced to turn around and, and fire. In fact, there was Rosen, and that we hadn't seen. We, we had seen in, in the previous, all the other footage we, we'd seen so far, it was Rosenbaum pursuing Rittenhouse. So we knew that was happening. But then from the, from the vantage point of the video evidence we had up until this point, uh, they went behind some cars and then we hear gunshots ring out and we don't know exactly what happened. And so you could speculate, well, maybe, uh, maybe Rosenbaum gave up and stopped and put his hands up and said, never mind, I'm not going to hurt you. You, know, you. you could speculate about that or claim that. Well, now we see it on video. He was pursuing him. He, he, and he had stated his intention. He wanted to kill this guy. Rittenhouse tried to get away. Rosenbaum was gaining ground at the very last minute. He turned around and shot while being pursued. Rosenbaum didn't give up, didn't try to walk away and get shot in the back while he's walking away. That didn't happen. Um, so this is, and then, and then in the other video footage that we've seen of the second uh, shooting, that that's, couldn't, couldn't be more clear. And in both cases, what you have is Kyle Rittenhouse trying to get away. He's trying to run away. They're coming after him. And they have, through their behavior and their own words, they've made very clear what their intentions are. And only at the last minute does Kyle Rittenhouse open fire. Because the other option would have been, okay, let this mob, these violent people descend upon me and just hope they don't kill me. I know some of them are armed. Um, you know, it, it, even if they're not, they could still do great damage to me. They could even kill me. They could take my gun and shoot me with it. Like, you know, the, the only other option was either pull the trigger or not and let them descend upon you and just hope that the damage they inflict on you isn't too severe. But you are not legally required to take that kind of risk. All right. Let's see. One other. I've got, got a bunch of other things I haven't even talked about yet. Uh I do have to mention this case, though. This is from NBC. It says, A Washington state father killed his daughter's 19-year-old boyfriend for selling her into a sex trafficking ring, according to police. The boyfriend's remains were discovered in the trunk of an abandoned car on East Everett Avenue in uh, Spokane last month, police said in a press conference. Investigators believe the victim was killed in November 2020. The girl's father, Joe John Eisenman, 60, was charged with first-degree murders being held on a million dollars bail. Um... So police said that Eisenman learned in October 2020 that his juvenile daughter had been sex trafficked in the Seattle area and obtained information that her boyfriend was responsible, according to the press release. Eisenman was able to rescue his daughter and get her back to uh, her, her home that same month. When the father learned that his daughter's boyfriend was going to be at a location in Airway Heights, Eisenman drove there and waited for the 19-year-old to arrive. During that encounter, Eisenman abducted the victim, tying him up and placing him in the trunk of a vehicle. Eisenman uh, subsequently assaulted the victim by hitting him in the head with a cinder block and then stabbed him repeatedly, causing his death. Um, after the homicide, Eisenman drove the vehicle to a remote area and abandoned the car with the body still inside. Unironically, this is uh, father of the year. I wish I put me on that jury and I will sentence him to a round of applause and, f- and free beer for life. And um, I say that without any hint of irony whatsoever. Assuming everything we just heard is true. I mean, assuming these details are all accurate, it's, it's possible that they're not. But on the assumption that, that, that this is all true, um, 
I, I would certainly hope that there's no jury in America, even in Washington state, that would convict this man and send him to prison. I mean, they might, they might feel like they have to convict him of something, you know, slap on the wrist at worst. That naughty, naughty, don't do that next time. Send him on his way. But in reality, this is, this is according to the details, this is a good father doing what a father should do. And doing what, you know, what most fathers probably wouldn't do or a great many fathers wouldn't, but not because they have a moral problem with it, just because they're worried, you know, they're worried about their own livelihood and they don't want to go to jail. But I can tell you one thing for sure. Any father, if, if their daughter is, is sex trafficked, any father would want to track down the sex trafficker and kill him. And any, any father would feel and would be totally justified in doing so. It's just that if they wouldn't, it's just because they don't want to go to prison, which is, you know, which is not, a, not an irrational concern either. I mean, think about what this guy did. According to the report, this is from the police. It's not even the defense attorney making this claim. This is the police saying that his daughter was made into a sex slave. He goes and rescues him, her from sex slavery, gets her to safety, finds out who did it, tracks the guy down, beats him with a cinder block, and stabs him to, to death. This is they, they, they literally made a, made a movie about that. That's Liam Neeson and Taken. And yeah, that's just a movie, but if you've seen, like, nobody watches that movie. Like, everyone, you watch that movie and you're rooting for Liam Neeson. I feel the same way about it here. Um, that's, that is the correct fatherly response to your daughter being sex trafficked. And the world is a better place today without that scumbag. With him stabbed to death and stuffed in a trunk, the world is a much better place. So congratulations to that man. And uh, I hope he has a, you know, uh, I hope his Father's Day gift next year is, is getting off on all charges because that's what he deserves. All right, now let's get to our comment section. Who's rocking polka dot and flannel shirts without shame? Do you know their name? They're the sweet baby gang. Yeah, I did call this segment the comment section, not reading the comments anymore. So that's slight. See, that's that's the branding genius that sets this show apart from all others. That slight tweak there. Most people wouldn't think of that. Call it the comment section instead. We had seven three-hour sessions with marketing to come up with that change. Okay. Um, All right. 420 Snack Time says, Matt is a fishing enthusiast, yet complains like a chick that baseball is boring. Why am I not surprised a skinny jean-wearing hipster like Matt dislikes a classic American sport like baseball? Well, you're banned for that, obviously. Um, but also, fishing is not a spectator sport, okay? Well, it's not true. I, I actually do sit and watch people. I'll watch YouTube videos of people fishing for two hours. So, uh, but, but, so I have to abandon that line of logic, and I'm just going to move on to the next comment. You're still banned from the show, though. Not getting out of this. Joseph says, Matt, my local pizza place in Pennsylvania promises that they'll deliver in 45 minutes and routinely comes in 20. I think you're stretching to make a point. The issue is right, but you move to the middle of nowhere, Tennessee. Suck it up. Joseph, I live in Nashville. You're banned from the show, too. We're on a roll today, guys. Y'all want to get banned? Is that what you want? David says, I like baseball more than football because I prefer my sports to not stop every eight seconds for 30 seconds while people adjust themselves by five yards and try the exact same thing over and over again. I also like baseball more than basketball because a good defense should be to be able to prevent a bad offense from scoring. 
Plus, unlike sports with timers, every play in baseball in a baseball game matters. Each player can make a difference. And most of all, you don't have to memorize 18,000 different fouls and keep track of 40 moving objects just to understand why everybody stopped playing, but the timer is still going. So what I, what I take from this, uh, David, is that uh, much like a woman, you, you have a, you're, you're not able to understand the football game as you're watching. Uh, maybe you've never sat with, and watched a football game with another man who can explain it to you. And, uh, and I understand that because, you, you know, no man wants to explain the game of football to another man while he's trying to watch football. So I think that's the situation you're in. But in, in, in terms of the game not stopping, are you kidding me? Baseball? The whole game is a stoppage. Like, the whole game is stopped all the time. Yeah, football is less exciting in between the plays. Okay, but in baseball, that's the whole game. The whole game is is about as exciting as the moment in between plays on a football field. So you're banned from the show, too. Uh, David, another David, says... As a former addict of the worst kind, I get sick of hearing addiction is not a choice, it's a disease... We've all known since elementary school that doing drugs is addictive and we shouldn't do it. And yet every day people choose to do them for the first time, the second time, the third time, 20th time, and so on. So yes, you choose addiction. And if you truly want to stop, you will. It'll be one of the hardest things you've ever done. And you you will struggle and stumble. But if you truly want to change, you will. People do it every single day and they'll continue to do so while others continue to, cho- to choose drugs. Um, yeah, I largely agree with you, David. And that's why I also don't like this. Uh, you know, I, I, I've, I've talked many times about the diseaseification of human behavior, um, turning every, you know, every every destructive human beha- behavior into the symptom of a disease. Every difficult human emotion becomes a disease. Everything is medicalized, and so we do the same thing with addiction. We say it's a disease, um, and and maybe if you want to de- if you want to define the word disease in a very broad way, I mean, you could find a way to define the word disease where addiction would qualify, but then the word disease really doesn't mean anything anymore. Um. And yeah, that, that's, it's also an important point that, yeah, no one wakes up a, one day and says, I want to be addicted to drugs and then goes out and tries to become addicted. Like, nobody does that. J- just like there are many morbidly obese people out there, but n- nobody says, I want to be morbidly obese and I'm going to go pursue that. There might be some weirdos who, you know, ha- who have TikTok accounts or something that, that do operate that way. But for the most part, no. So you don't choose obesity in that sense, but you do choose the behavior that you know will cause obesity. And so it is a choice in that sense, which is really the only sense that matters. And yes, we could say the same thing with addiction. You don't, your choice was not, you were not pursuing addiction, but you did engage in a behavior that you knew would very likely cause addiction. That is an important point. Okay. Um, Daryl says, Matt, as much as I like you and Michael Knowles, I can't help but think that all the Daily Wire is just controlled opposition. Ben Shapiro feels like a vax-pushing traitor. He probably hangs with Hillary Clinton or Bill Gates. Uh, you're, you're actually right about this. I'm not supposed to talk about it. Uh, but uh, Ben and Hillary are, I mean, they're best friends. Every time I see Ben, all he ever do- does is blab about hanging out with Hillary. Oh, me and Hillary went mini-golfing yesterday. It was so fun. He doesn't shut up about it. I mean, they're best friends. She's, she's here. Hillary Clinton's here in the office a lot, in fact, hanging out. Um, so, it, yeah, it's, it is kind of an uncomfortable and awkward situation. I'm glad that you pointed that out. Uh, let's see. Finally, do we have a finally? Okay, Eric says, unfortunately, I don't expect any Supreme Court will ever overthrow Roe v. Wade, no matter how many conservative justices are, the, are um, 
are on the Supreme Court. Regarding Kavanaugh and Barrett, because of the major controversies surrounding their nominations, I really think they're going out of their way to appear as if they aren't Trump's lackeys and aren't conservative ideologues. Unfortunately, the justices appointed by Democrats never seem to worry about how they're viewed. I pray that Kavanaugh and Barrett will eventually start acting like conservatives. Justice Roberts is beyond a lost cause. He's a full-blown liberal. Um, yeah, well, the thing is with Kavanaugh, you know, if you looked at his judicial record, to find out that he's that he's a that he's leans more liberal, you know, le- left of of center, that's not terribly shocking. With Barrett, there were red flags. I mean, there were indications, but I was certainly fooled. I mean, overall, it is a, it is a su- surprising turn of events, and you would hope the whole idea. Between ha- behind having Supreme Court justices with lifetime appointments is that they're not swayed by politics. They're not running for re-election. They're going to be in that position for the rest of their lives if they want to be. They don't need to worry about getting a job somewhere else. And so they're supposed to look at cases and make the right decision without any political concerns whatsoever because who cares what the public thinks? You're not subject to them. You're not, you're not up, this isn't up for a vote. There, there, are da- there are plenty of downsides to, to that arrangement, to the lifetime appointment arrangement. This is supposed to be the major upside. But as you point out, that upside has evaporated. Because it does seem as though Roberts, Kavanaugh, even Barrett now, um, they are very concerned about how they're viewed. It is, is, it is as if they are running for office. So the whole idea behind a lifetime appointment has been basically negated. I'm very excited to introduce an incredible app that everyone who buys gas needs to know about. And that's that's pretty much everybody probably listening right now. It's called Get Upside. My listeners are making up to 25 cents for every gallon of gas every time they fill up. Just download the free Get Upside app in the App Store or Google Play right now. Use promo code Walsh and get a bonus 25 cents per gallon on your first fill up. That's up to 50 cents back that you're getting. And this is free money. And if you it, like what, what, what do I have to say to get to convince you to take some free money? takes almost no effort, and uh, you're getting that money back to you. Just download the app for free. Use promo code Walsh to get up to 50 cents a gallon cash back on your first tank. Some people who drive a lot are making as much as two to $300 a month in cash back, and there's no catch. The cash back gets added right to your account. You can cash out anytime to your bank account, PayPal, e-gift card for Amazon and other brands. Again, no no catch. There's, there's no fine print here. It's very, very simple. Just download the free GetUpside app and use promo code Walsh to get up to 50 cents per gallon cash back on your first tank. That's code Walsh with the GetUpside app. Get it now. And also, uh, I got to tell you about this. If you've been searching for a daily morning podcast without an agenda, look no further than The Morning Wire, which has been topping the Apple and Spotify charts since its recent release. It's the only daily news podcast that values your time and the truth. And while we're working overtime... To bring you the news you need to know, we need your help to keep the facts trending towards number one. So subscribe now and start listening to Morning Wire on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a five-star review if you like what you hear. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. Today we have another reverse cancellation. We'll once again be canceling the outrage mob, except for a change of pace. I am not the target of the mob that's getting canceled. Instead, a few days ago, the social media masses were very upset at conservative commentator and radio host Jesse Kelly, who while discussing his his approach to parenting, tweeted this. He says, my sons are both getting excited about, uh, are getting kicked out of my home when they graduate high school. They know this. I've told them their whole lives. Go fly, little birdie. It's my job to make sure they know how. So he's kicking his sons out of his home once they're legal adults. Now, plenty on the left developed 
severe tummy aches over this, and they responded with angry comments, calling him a terrible and mean father, explaining why it's a parent's responsibility to care for their poor, helpless children well into adulthood if need be. And I'm sure many of the commenters were themselves, are themselves, helpless children in their mid-20s or 30s who still rely on mommy and daddy for room and board and to buy them Lunchables and juice boxes. But the far more fascinating reaction came from some on the right who also criticized Kelly's parenting plan, but from a slightly different angle. Now, they're not part of the outrage mob, but I'm going to focus more on them instead because they're more interesting. Sorab Amari, well-known conservative writer and author, was one of the people to take issue with this. He responded and said, quote, when I was younger, I disdained the intergenerational living that was a part of my of, of even my uber westernized family's ethos. I struck out on my own as quickly as I could. Now at 36, I see that the Iranian ethos as a treasure for the young, the middle-aged, and elderly. Now, many other responses were along this line, arguing that it's actually a traditional and family-first mentality which encourages adult children to stay at home with their parents. Thus, they would say, the most conservative thing is to support this setup. It's actually a leftist view to turn your nose up at the proverbial adult living in his parents' basement. That's what they argue. And they're correct that throughout history, this has been the standard approach. Still is in many cultures. But this comparison ignores some major differences between the typical adult living at home in America in 2021 and the historical version of the same arrangement. Two big ones to consider. First, historically, a man may have stayed with his parents until marriage, but he also got married much younger. In 1950, the average age of marriage for a man was 22. Now it's 30. That's, that's, a, that's a difference of nearly a decade. That's a difference of your entire 20s, just about. Second, historically, men were learning basic survival skills and how to be a provider while living at home. They were not only learning those skills, but they were applying them. Part of the reason that families stayed together through multiple generations is that they needed all those hands on deck to keep the household running, keep food on the table, logs in the fireplace, and so on. That's not often the case now. These days, young adults tend to whittle away their 20s on selfish pursuits, saving money so they can blow it on consumer electronics or whatever other toys they enjoy. They aren't working in the fields or chopping wood, not in the vast majority of cases anyway. Young adults aren't staying at home, working hard for their families, learning and developing their survival skills while preparing to get married sometime before their 25th birthday. Instead, often they're at home drifting aimlessly, spending lots of time staring at various screens that their parents paid for, developing no survival skills at all, no skills of any kind, until one day when they're approaching middle age, they finally stumble into marriage or, or maybe not. Maybe they never do. The intergenerational setup in our culture has helped to create an extended, nearly eternal adolescence. But historically, that wasn't a problem. In fact, historically, there was no extended adolescence because there was no adolescence at all. Adolescence itself is a modern invention. There's a reason why most major religions have their coming into adulthood, their coming-of-age induction ceremonies at the age of 13 or 15 or 16. Same for tribal societies. You know, they all have this coming-of-age moment, and it's, it's, it's in the teenage years. That's because a child didn't transition slowly into adulthood historically, but instead went right from childhood to adulthood. There were two categories of people, adults and children, not three children, adolescents, and adults. So that back then, a 22-year-old man living at home with his parents was indeed a man and had been for almost a decade already. That's just not how it works anymore in this country. Not in most cases. 
If it's different for you and your family, if you actually do have your boys out working the fields and chopping the wood, then more power to you. But the average Western family in modern times lives a far easier and more painless existence, and they have a lot less to do as most of the hard things have become mechanized and automated. What this means is that if you want your children, especially your boys, to learn how to survive in the world, to develop real skills, to eventually become competent providers, it's often necessary to kick them out of your comfortable little nest and have them go build their own. Now, it's not like you're dropping them out of a helicopter into the Amazon with nothing but a machete and a single jug of water. You're just sending them to go live in a studio apartment across town or wherever. This might be the only way for them to learn the kinds of lessons that young men of earlier eras learned at much younger ages. There are many facets to adult life in the modern world that you can't really understand or know how to navigate until they become a part of your life. So you could talk to your kids about what it's like to pay bills, balance a budget, prioritize uh, spending and all that. You can talk to them about any of that while they're still suckling from the metaphorical teat, but it's not likely to sink in unless they're forced to do it themselves. The fact is that we, we live in a culture populated by millions of terminally incompetent, helpless, childish men who in terms of life skills are barely above potty training level. And that's because for them, Life skills have been, at best, a theoretical concept. But you can't develop a skill in theory. Nobody ever became a great pitcher by reading books about it. You have to pick up the ball and start throwing it. And and the modern man isn't going to learn how to be a man while sitting on a beanbag chair and playing Call of Duty in his his parents' basement on his parents' TV. He's got to go out and live it, whether he wants to or not. I had to go through that learning curve myself. It wasn't easy. I had to learn most of the lessons the hard way. Apparently, you know, one lesson I learned is that if you don't pay your electric bill, they'll cut off your electricity and you're going to have some very cold nights in January. And if you don't save money from each paycheck and then a big expense hits that you weren't expecting, like a car, you know, you have a car problem or something, you might be living off of hot dogs and ramen noodles for a while. And you're going to be pretty hungry. I learned all that and much more. Now I provide for a family of six and they don't go hungry and they don't freeze at night. I did so they don't have to until the time comes for them to go out into the big, scary world and confront the same harsh realities that I did. That's the way it goes now. It has to go that way. Unless we want to revert back to an agrarian society, you know, work in the fields and milking the cows. Not a terrible plan, actually. But in the meantime, if we're not doing that, you'll probably have to force your kids to become adults the hard way. And so today, Jesse Kelly is not canceled. His cancelers are canceled. And if they were my kids, they'd all be sent to bed without dinner tonight. And tomorrow they'd be out looking for new lodging arrangements. And we'll leave it there for today. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Godspeed. Well, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review. Also, tell your friends to subscribe as well. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts. We're there. Also, be sure to check out the other Daily Wire podcasts, including The Ben Shapiro Show, Michael Knowles Show, The Andrew Clavin Show. Thanks for listening. The Matt Walsh Show is produced by Sean Hampton, executive producer Jeremy Boring. Our supervising producer is Mathis Glover. Our technical director is Austin Stevens. Production manager, Pavel Vodosky. The show is edited by Ali Hinkle. Our audio is mixed by Mike Cormina. Hair and makeup is done by Cherokee Hart. And our production coordinator is McKenna Waters. The Matt Walsh Show is a Daily Wire production. Copyright Daily Wire 2021. Glenn Youngkin, the Republican candidate, wins the governorship in Virginia. Ron DeSantis rightly bullies woke businesses. And Amy Barrett 
blows it on an important Supreme Court case. Check it out on The Michael Knowles Show.